0: The Epistle lesson for this third Sunday after Pentecost comes from Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 5, verses 6 through 15. You can find it on page 1120 of the Pew Bible. In this lesson, the Apostle Paul teaches us the depth and the cost of God's love, and this is the core of the Christian faith. Uh, Please stand as you are able. From Romans 5, beginning at verse 6, we read in Jesus' name. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law, yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one to come." But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for the many. Father, these are your words. Sanctify us in the truth. Your word is truth. Amen. You may be seated. Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ died for us. Think about that. Meditate on that. Isn't that marvelous? Jesus Christ died for us. It's not like some random or average person died for us. But Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, through whom all things in heaven and on earth were created, that's the person who died for us. The perfect, righteous, eternal, and all-powerful Son of God, he is the one who took on human flesh, suffered intense anguish, and died for us. Now... If someone that awesome would sacrifice himself for us, what does that say about us? I mean, if Jesus is going to purchase us with his holy and precious blood, we must be really remarkable. We must be really good. We must be really valuable, right? Or, and this is the other way to go, not. (laughs) Now... Don't get me wrong about this. We are intensely valuable to God. But if there is anything special or intensely remarkable in this whole thing, it is all in the love of God, which is manifested in the innocent sufferings and death of Jesus Christ. We should not really determine our goodness based on how much God loves us. We might do that with other humans, and that formula might work with other humans, but it does not work in the sight of God. In the sight of God, goodness or righteousness is determined by the law. Consider yourself in the light of the Ten Commandments. When we consider ourselves in this light, we see that there are many things, things below God, that we have put in the place of God, that we have feared Loved and trusted in above the one true God. And that violates the first commandment. We see that we have often misused his name, and we have not called upon his name first in every time of need. We have not prioritized worship or his word, and thus we have not received the gift of rest that he desires to give to us. Or consider yourself, have you dishonored your parents? Have we hated or hurt our brothers and sisters? Have we lusted for someone who is not our spouse or been unfaithful to our spouses? Have we stolen or taken property that is not ours, even under the pretense of illegal right? Have we lied, slandered, or gossiped? Have we even desired someone or something that does not belong to us? These are the Ten Commandments. And if you really want to know if you are righteous or sinful, good or bad, consider yourself in the light of the Ten Commandments. Here we see that we are not righteous. We are not good. We are sinful and deserving of God's wrath. And yet, you are remarkably valuable to God. This seems contradictory, doesn't it? But consider the the concept of value. What determines the value of something? Value, if you're in in business or, or marketing or sales or anything like that, you know that value depends on what someone is willing to pay. For example, about four years ago, we bought a Subaru. Then about one year ago, we needed to buy a minivan. And so we thought about selling the Subaru, and I looked up what the supposed value of it was, and it was significantly more than what we paid for it three years earlier. Now, the car didn't get any better. We added miles and some food stains to it. I don't know if we would have gotten significantly more, but I certainly could have gotten more than what I originally paid for it. And you probably know why there was a shortage of new cars, so someone somewhere would have been willing to pay extra for a decent used car. I kept the car, by the way, it's, it is pretty decent, and I sold a different car. This illustrates, though, the concept of value. Something is as valuable as what someone is willing to pay for it. I suppose that also means that if I can't find someone willing to pay top dollar for a used Subaru, then it really isn't worth top dollar. Also, the value of a house depends on what someone is willing to pay for it. That's why somebody's house in California is worth a lot more than yours is. And the value of land depends on what someone is willing to pay for it. Now let's apply this to something totally different. How do you know... How valuable you are to God. What did God pay for you? Jesus Christ purchased you, not with silver and gold, which is rather cheap, but with his holy and precious blood and with his innocent sufferings and death. Now, that doesn't mean that you are good, but it does indicate your value to God. You are worth at least, his blood and death. And this is not because you are good. We already know that we are not righteous. But you have this immense value to God because God is that good. He's willing to pay this extreme cost in spite of our unrighteousness. And so it's not our righteousness that makes us valuable. It's not our goodness that makes us valuable. It is the intense and remarkable love of God that makes us valuable. Think about this part with me. In our world, who dies for another person? A pretty good person might die for another pretty good person. If you drop down to an average person, though, it becomes a little bit more questionable. An average person might die for someone else if that person is really good, like more than just pretty good, or if it's someone that they really care about, like their wife or a child. But for an average person, probably not, at least not willingly. And now what about a bad person, or what we would consider to be a bad person? Probably not anyone. Bad people don't die for other bad people, and most pretty good people don't even die for bad people. You see, there's an inverse relationship between the relative goodness of the person who's willing to die and the relative goodness of the person they're willing to die for. As the character of the dyer goes up, the the bar, the bottom bar for the persons they were willing to die for, goes down. The pool gets... Bigger, And so an average person might have a, a few people they would consider dying for, a pretty good person might have more people in that pool, and a person of very high moral character would have a bigger pool. So think about who you would be willing to die for. And please try to think about this honestly, because I'm not going to make you tell anybody and none of us can read your minds And so don't just try to qualify yourself as one of those really good persons, you know. But really, who would you die for? Honestly, who, if anyone, would you sacrifice your life to save? Who do you value more than yourself? Because that's what it takes to die for a person. You have to value their life more than your own. Now ask yourself the flip side, too. Who would I not die for? Who's someone I know who's just been a real jerk to me? Or who can you think of from the news or world history who's definitely not worth dying for? Now, if we are at all honest with ourselves, the list of people that we would die for is pretty short. And the list of people we would not die for is the other 8 billion people in the world. If we were better than we really are, if we were less selfish and more loving, the list would be longer. But it's not. Now, who is on Jesus' list? All those 8 billion people we left off ours, even more from the past and the future. Everyone is on that list. Even the people that you specifically thought of that you would not die for. They are on his list, and you are on that list. Now, this really says nothing about how good you and I are, but it says everything about Jesus, and this is the core of Christianity right here. It was not anything good in us that moved the Son of God to offer himself for us. If anything, it was the exact opposite it was our weakness and sinfulness that moved the Son of God to purchase us with his blood. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, And so it's not like God looked down and said, oh, they're such cute little sinners. I just can't help but die for them. No. It's more like God looked down and said, what a mess. I need to do something about this. We keep breaking his commandments. We don't work the way he created us to. But instead of that deterring him from sacrificing himself for us, that actually moves him to sacrifice himself for us. That's how good he is. If God were to operate by our logic, he would just destroy this whole mess, and that would be just. If you're into making things, and, and I don't know what it is, it could be quilting, woodworking, baking, or some other craft, there's a certain point, and We kind of figure out where this is for each of us. There's a certain point where you just don't bother trying to fix something that gets messed up. If you cut a board too short, it's not worth trying to stretch it. Or if you forgot to put sugar in your cookies, it's not worth injecting the sugar one grain at a time into every pore of the cookies after they're baked. Not worth it. It is far better to just do it over again. But with God, he doesn't care what it costs. And he's not even the one who messed it up. If he operated by our logic, he would just destroy the world and start over. But that is not what he did. God is love. And when we say that, we mean not just some fleeting, selfish love, but an enduring, selfless, and sacrificial love. It is a love that is based on our need and God's goodness. God does not love us because we are so good. God loves us in spite of our wickedness because he is so good. We have moments throughout our lives when we feel unlovable. We feel condemned. Now that's different than godly conviction. The Holy Spirit convicts us of sin so that we will flee to Jesus for forgiveness. But I'm talking about when we feel condemned. That's when we feel like God can't love us anymore. That is despair, and it comes from the devil, not from God. When you have those moments, ask yourself this question. How good is God? Is he good enough to still love me? Because if God can't love you anymore, that means that there's a limit to his goodness. Is God's goodness limited? Is that really what we think? Is that what we want to confess about God? If that's what you confess, if you think that he can't love you, that's a false confession. God loves us, not because we are good, but because he is good. That is the whole basis for his love. Now, if any of this sounds strange or backward or just different to us, perhaps we should reconsider the way we think of love. Love is not God's feelings of affection for us. Contrary to our common usage of the word love, love, the biblical word love does not really describe God's emotional feelings for us. Now, certainly God does have emotional feelings for us, and this is expressed in the biblical word compassion. We even saw that in our gospel lesson today, when Jesus had compassion on the people because they were like sheep without a shepherd. He had a deep emotional feeling of compassion for them. The biblical word love is related, but Different. Love describes God's action toward us. It describes His enduring and selfless and sacrificial actions on our behalf. That's what the biblical word love means. And this, by the way, is the same meaning the Bible uses when it calls us to love our neighbors. It's the word used when it commands parents to. Love their children. It's even the same definition used to describe the love between husband and wife. We might think of marital love in terms of romance, and romance is good. But if you have ever been married for more than a day, you know that there's sacrifice involved. When the scripture says husbands love your wives, it doesn't mean just have some warm, fuzzy feelings for them. It means sacrifice yourself for her just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And so the biblical word love, whether it describes the love God calls us to show our neighbors, the love God desires to exist between husband and wife or to have for their children, or especially the love God showed us in his son, Jesus Christ, the biblical word love describes enduring, selfless, and sacrificial action. And so the love of God is not his deep emotion for us. That's his compassion. God's love is his enduring, selfless, and sacrificial action on behalf of weak sinners. And this is most clearly manifested in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. When the Son of God hung beaten, bloodied, naked, and humiliated, It was not because you and I deserve it so much. It was because you and I need it so much. And this highlights the remarkable intensity of God's love for us. Now, the point is not to use the cross of Christ to teach us how wicked we are. That's not it. We learn that when we compare our thoughts, words, and deeds to the revelation of God's will in the Ten Commandments. And once we learn the depth of our depravity according to the law, we learn the depth of God's love in the death of our Savior. For God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God loved us by accepting our sin into his own body, suffering the intense guilt of sin on our behalf, and dying our death in our place. This is how God loved us, and this is how we are declared righteous. And so the Apostle Paul goes on, If while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. Now what does that mean? I'll tell you what it doesn't mean first. It does not mean that Christ's death was not enough. It's not like his death did part of it and his resurrection did the rest of it, by no means. Our reconciliation to God was completely accomplished by Christ's death, even before his resurrection. But, and here's the the beautiful part, if we have such hope in the dead Son of God, how much more hope do we have in our crucified and risen Savior? For if he has risen from the dead... We know that his sacrifice has been accepted. And more than that, we know that Christ has defeated death and opened eternal life to us. And so we shall be saved from all enemies, not just sin and the devil, but even that dreadful enemy of death. This is God's gift to us. This is the deep, enduring, selfless, and sacrificial love of God for weak and ungodly sinners. For God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so we are reconciled, justified, and saved all by the loving action of God. Praise God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. And now may the peace of God, which passes all understanding, guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Amen.